0: It is so good to be with you guys this morning. My name is JD. I am I have the distinct privilege of serving as the Crosstalk pastor here at Cypress Creek Church. I, in the season of graduation, I, I it is so cool to watch people what what they're doing, where they're going off to, where life is going to take them as they begin this long journey. I, I look back at at my experience in college and I am in a completely different place than I ever thought I would have the honor and the privilege to be when I was a 22-year-old kid walking out of Ohio State University. And I hanging out with students, doing all of that, I I get asked the question a lot, why why didn't you choose Texas State? I'm, I'm from Austin, it's right down the road, all of that sort of deal. And I look back on an experience at Texas State, and I am so impressed with those who make it out with a degree, because I would still be the guy sitting by the river, never having gone to class, eight credits deep, and every one of them was withdrawn because I just wouldn't have gone. And so praise the Lord that that wasn't my experience. It is all the more impressive that you guys made it out, that you got the piece of paper, and that now you get to see where that journey of life takes you as you begin to follow God and what's next. And uh, in thinking about my college experience, I really started to follow Jesus uh, right before I went to college. Grew up in the church started to follow Jesus, and as a result, really, when I began to follow Jesus, my early life of, of being a disciple of Christ was marked by me really being wanting to be as nonconformist and different from everyone else that I could possibly be. I, I so badly wanted to reject the status quo of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, that you had to fit this one certain mold to become a follower of Jesus. And so, growing up in the church, my parents were in leadership, I was the classic first child, and so I always did what I was told to, I always acted right, and I always dressed the part, right? And so, in my own way, what I wanted to do in becoming an adult and becoming a young man was I wanted to prove that I could still follow Jesus and look and talk and act differently than everything that I had been around when I was growing up. And quite frankly, I was way too scared to actually rebel. And so what the best I could do was just not look like everybody else following Jesus. I couldn't bring myself to like push it farther than that, but really uh, on that journey I interned at a church in Austin who Praise God that they were willing to take me on at the time. But I interned for two summers at a church in Austin. While I worked there, I I really, I had the long hair, the beard, the cut-off shorts, the holy t-shirt, like, uh, basically nothing has changed. I'm just 10 years older at this point in time. But really, when when I was working there, what I was actively trying to do was doing everything I could to not fit in and to be different than the people around me. And that's who I was. That's who I wanted to be. And so when I graduated from college and was interviewing for a full-time job at that church, I remember I showed up to my interview and I was dressed well. So wearing a sport coat, looking good, I'm walking through the offices to my interview, and I walked past the associate pastor, who I knew well at the time, and so he stops and I say hello, and he literally stopped and he looked me up and down, and he goes, so you do own shoes? And then he just walked off. Like, he just walked off, never said anything else. But that is, I, it, it would like caught me off guard, but that is truly who I wanted to be at that point in time. And after I was working at the church full-time for, for a while, I started to get asked to, to preach a very early 8 a.m. traditional service. And this service really still had all of the tradition. It had the robes, it had the choir, it had the liturgy, it had the hymns, it had the candles, it had all of it. And the people who went to that service generally were a crowd who appreciated and loved that sort of tradition that has been passed down for thousands of years. Now, me, on the other hand, when I first got asked to preach that service, I went back to my office with my coworker, and I said, I want to preach that service not wearing any shoes. I want to preach it in my jorts. I want to preach it in my holy t-shirt with a hat on. I'm going to go get a new tattoo just for this occasion, And I felt very passionate about doing so. And now, at this point, half of y'all in the room are with me on this. You guys are silently cheering in your seats, hoping that no one notices, because what you are silently affirming is that what you look like or how you dress does not determine your competency or your calling to preach the word of God. And in that, you don't have to fit a mold. If I am in a relationship with Jesus, then I have freedom in Christ to dress and to act and to wear whatever I would like to wear, right? And some of you guys maybe grew up in a tradition that felt really restrictive, that it was a very traditional method of doing church, and so it felt really restrictive, and so you you kind of relate to my sentiments in that that way. And there's some truth, and there's some validity in those feelings. There really is. Now, the other half of y'all in the room are really upset with me, and you're upset with me because that sort of attitude portrays disrespect and it portrays arrogance towards those who were sitting in those seats. And what that that attitude did is it really wasn't honoring those who were there to receive that message. And you're also right in your feelings, you're also right in, in feeling that way. I mean, we're gonna talk about this today, Paul makes it clear. That he became all things to all people for the sake that some might come to know the truth of the gospel. There's truth in that. And that means sometimes you dress right. You act accordingly to what is expected of you in those sorts of roles. And you see, we all come to church as the sum total of all of our experience. Our upbringing, our education, our relationships, our past experiences, the culture we're a part of, the individually developed set of beliefs that you have. And these are the things that shape how we view a life of faith. And no no two of us are the same in that. Our experiences, our upbringing, our education is unique to us. And so what happens then is that when we gather as a body of believers, we see that there's a beautiful and vast amount of diversity in the church. Because we all come as who we are, for better or for worse in a lot of ways. A lot of worse when I was very young. But really, the diversity that we see in the body of believers is the most beautiful part of the church. Because the church is the one place in this world where you can belong no matter what as the sum total of all of your experiences, you can belong in the church. And I only know that because I experienced it. You see, when I went off to college, it took me a while to kind of figure out life. And so I, when I began walking with the Lord, I was a mess. And I had a bunch of stuff in the closet that I didn't want to come out. And so when I went to church, what I tried to do is I tried to keep that stuff so far hidden and behind me that no one ever got a chance to see but when I walked into the church, into the church and they welcomed me with open arms and they showed me the grace that comes with the relationship with our Lord Jesus, then I began to willingly start to bring those things out of the closet. To bring those into the light so that the Lord could begin to work and to bring healing and restoration and redemption into those places in my life. And that's only because the church was a place where I could belong as I was in all of my messiness. And once we have a place to belong, we then begin to respond to the grace we have received and we start to become more and more of the people that God calls us to be. But it starts with a place of belonging, creating an environment where people can walk in as they are, not as they should be. And we see in the church a beautiful picture of a group of people who seemingly have so little in common coming together in in unity around a central cause. And that central cause is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we look in Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his disciples and he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the central call of the church. This is it, simply, to go and to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that God has commanded us. We see it in the mission statement of Cypress Creek Church. Love God, love others, make disciples. It is central to our identity as a body of believers. And there are a lot of beautiful things about Jesus's command, but I want to hone in on one here for a second. And it's actually about what it doesn't say in this command. And what it doesn't say is that there's a certain mold that we have to look like or to be like or to act like to fulfill this call. We see here at the end of Jesus' time on earth that he handed 11 disciples, tax collectors, fishermen, confessing doubters, really nobodies in society. He handed them nothing less but the entire authority of the kingdom of God. And he sent them out as they were, the sum total of all of their different and unique experiences, to go to the ends of the earth and to begin to make disciples. And this wasn't predicated upon them becoming this homogenous group of people first. There wasn't this cloistering away where they all had to go and to learn to act and speak and think in the exact same way. He sent them out as they were, And we see here with extreme clarity that how we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ. But the problem lies in the fact that we are indeed broken and sinful human beings. So we oftentimes get it wrong. We take that command to go and to make disciples and oftentimes we just add all sorts of stuff to it. We want to pile on all of these sorts of expectations for people. And what we see is that as a result at an institutional level, the church has become defined by its differences. It's defined by whether we're sprinklers or dunkers in baptism. It's defined by how we take communion. It's defined by how we do the liturgy. It's defined by whether we sing hymns or we sing contemporary music. And what happens is that the church begins to major in the minors. The superfluous, secondary things become major things, and what happens is it causes divisions in the body of Christ. And we've seen this, if you look back at the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, that is the story of the church. Now, some of these divisions were for very real and valid reasons, some really fair and valid reasons, but a lot of them are over silly doctrinal differences that aren't central to the call of the church, And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that the only way to stay unified and solve the problems that we are inevitably going to encounter as the body of Christ, as a diverse group of people, is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if we look at the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, Paul demonstrates this idea of unity for us, not only through his theological argumentation, but also throughout the entire structure of the book as a whole. We see here that there's a common structure throughout that Paul uses to address these different issues in the church. And he always begins by addressing the problem. He tells you what the problem is, and then what he does is he goes in and he responds to that problem using the truth of the gospel in a variety of different ways. And his goal in doing so is that he wants you to see every avenue of life through the lens of the gospel because he maintains that the only way that we can have unity as a body of believers is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this play out in each section of the book. Paul begins his letter by addressing divisions in the church, as Jose talked about two weeks ago. People in the church were saying that they followed Paul, or they followed Apollos, or they followed Peter. And what Paul does, and he responds to these sentiments, and I'm paraphrasing here, That church is not a popularity contest. Church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus and not any specific leader or teacher or pastor. And so leaders, teachers, and pastors are here to serve Jesus. And the implication of that is that church is certainly not about them, but it is about the truth of the gospel. And he addresses this in chapters one to four. And he calls us to be unified in Jesus. And then he turns the corner in chapters five to seven and Paul addresses some issues surrounding sexual integrity. And there are a variety of issues in the Corinthian church surrounding sexual integrity. And without getting into the weeds on the specific issues, what he's basically saying is that people were using their freedom in Christ to justify their sexual behavior. And what Paul says is that's not okay. He reminds them that Jesus died for their sins, and that includes the brokenness of relationships caused by sexual misconduct. And he makes the case that sexual integrity is one of the main ways in which we respond to the loving grace found in Christ, with the implication being that what we do with our bodies matters. This is where he calls the Corinthian church to be united in conviction. And that conviction is about what sin is and how it affects the body of believers as a whole. What sin is and how it affects the body of believers as a whole. And then Paul begins to address the next issue for the church in Corinth in chapters 8 to 10. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And that is an entire three chapters on food sacrificed to idols, And this section is defined by Paul talking about the necessity of us finding unity in our conviction about our preferences, about our freedoms, and about our rights. Unity and conviction as it pertains to our freedoms, our rights, and our preferences. And Jose was very right in week one when he was overviewing this series when he said that this isn't relevant to us today. And he's right We don't see in Western culture, in Western society, here in the United States, we don't deal generally with the issue of food sacrifice to idols. But what Paul does here with this theological truth is he lays out something for us that I believe is the most pertinent and relevant reminder for us today in how we are called to act and to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And for us to understand Paul's teaching here, we have to understand a little bit of the whole historical and cultural context in the city of Corinth. You see, in the city of Corinth, there, there were all of these shrines to Greek and Roman gods and goddesses all over the city. And so what would happen is that a like citizens of Corinth would regularly go to these shrines and they would offer an animal for sacrifice to the local gods and goddesses. And animal sacrifices are not something that's extraordinarily prevalent in Western culture, although in Eastern culture it still has a place. I was in a seminary class and we were actually talking about this passage and we were talking about, oh, it doesn't apply to us today, it's a very culturally relevant thing, and there was a student from India who spoke up and he goes, this happens all the time where I'm from. This is still a prevalent part of our world today, but it's not something that we see, And so for those of you who aren't familiar with the practice, basically an animal is killed and then cooked and then eaten as a form of worship to a god or a goddess. And so what was happening is that oftentimes there was more meat than a single family could eat when they would make a sacrifice like this. So what they would do is they would invite others to come and partake in this feast or banquet. And really this sort of meal became the setting for much of the social and economic and religious activity in the city of Corinth. And invites to such events really became the social currency of the day. It's how you got business. It determined who you were doing business with. It determined your social status and culture was all by who invited you to things, and then you reciprocated that invite. In a lot of of ways, it was how you postured yourself against other people is which invites were you getting and which invites were you handing out? And so we see that there are a variety of issues here, and so that when the banquet feasts were over, there was oftentimes, even still, there were leftovers. And so those leftovers would then be taken to the market in Corinth, and they would be sold for anybody to come and buy. And more often than not, this food that was sacrificed to idols, this meat, was indistinguishable from meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols. So there were oftentimes many ancient Jews where they didn't know who the butcher was, they wouldn't eat meat at all because they didn't want to participate in the worship of idols. And even on top of that, there were. we see that meat in that culture was incredibly expensive. And so it became a luxury item. Those who did not have wealth and power and status oftentimes didn't have meat to eat. So if you were poor, the only time that you might have a chance to eat meat as if you got invited to one of these banquets or feasts where you celebrated the worship of an idol. And so with all of this, we see that this issue of meat is very multifaceted. It deals with social issues. It deals with ethnic issues. It deals with economic and class issues in all of this. And we have plenty of high-charged issues in society today that envelop all of these sorts of considerations. And we as believers have to figure out how we are called to act and to live in those contexts. So we can see why it's very relevant then for Paul to write to the Corinthian believers about this, because this was a diverse church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and they're all trying to figure out for the first time what do I do with this freedom in Christ? How am I supposed to live? Can I go? to those banquets, can I not go to those banquets? How does it affect my business? How does it affect me culturally and socially? How does it affect my ethnic brothers and sisters? All of these things are at play. And he starts here in 1 Corinthians, we're gonna start in verse one. And he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone knows something, He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And we see these quotation marks here in verse 1. And what this indicates to us is that this is something that the Corinthian believers were saying to Paul. And so he is quoting their words back to them as he addresses this. And so what we see here is that the Corinthians are placing knowledge rather than love at the center of their moral compass and their communal life in Christ. Knowledge is more important than love. And so what Paul is doing here is he's not saying that knowledge in and of itself is bad or that we shouldn't pursue it. What he is doing here is saying that when love is at work, it only brings about the mutual edification and upbuilding of the community of believers, whereas knowledge is tearing down the communal life that they have in Christ. He's demonstrating here is that uh, what he's really critiquing here is that a, is a knowledge that gets carried away with itself a knowledge that vaunts itself as giving status or importance the kind of knowledge that becomes a stumbling block for another person and the kind of knowledge that beats down and covers up love and so what paul is doing here is he's saying that such knowledge is prideful and foolish and it leads to a lack of love in the community He goes on here in verse four, and he says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So Paul here addresses the issue on two fronts. He addresses it in regards to idols, and he addresses it in regards to God. And the first of which, idols, he addresses very dismissively. He says, basically, idols don't exist. They don't. And the second part of this, the nature of God is is worthy of considerable elaboration. What he maintains is that God is one. And what this does is this echoes back to the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is what the the Jewish people would, would repeat every day. And it begins, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so here Paul is pointing back to Yahweh the God of Israel, as the one true God. This is the basis for his theological argument here. And he says here in verse five, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom We exist, and Paul here sets up his theological argument with these statements, and my theological nerd brain wants to stop and unpack this, because we could talk about this for like an hour. This is basically the early form of what amounts to a creedal statement, so if you were to look in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, these are the kind of confessions and declarations about the nature and the character of God that you would find in a document like this. This is profound stuff. And so what he is doing here is he is affirming the nature of God and he is re- reframing the issue of this food. These assertions about God and about Christ affirm that we as believers should ideally relate to the world as those who belong to God. Paul is urging us to view this issue through a gospel lens, that this isn't about business, it's not about it's not about. Culture, it's not about ethnicity. This is a a gospel issue more than anything. And he goes on and he says in verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And here we see the phrase however, and however really serves for us as our transitional marker In this passage. And what I mean by that is that Paul is moving from making his theological case and now he's talking about the implications of what he has just outlined. And so, what he's doing here is he's saying this is the central problem that there were some who are now believers who used to participate in this sort of idol worship and sacrificial system. And therefore, if they go and they participate in this, their conscience is going to be burdened by doing so. And so Paul is primarily concerned for these people, and he doesn't want their conscience to be burdened. So he goes on, and I think he can't help himself here. In verse 8, he's going to provide a theological summation statement, and I think he just can't help himself. And so what he says is, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do Because of his theological argument that there is only one God and that idols do not exist, he's basically saying you can do whatever you want, eat or don't eat, because we know that our justification, that our standing before God is not determined by whether we eat this food or not. That is only on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so that's his point here. You're free. And he says in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? The important thing to notice here is that it's not only about the physical act of eating the meat. What he's pointing to here is that it's about participating in the activities where these things take place. These social and religious and economic activities that take place and the Corinthian pagan temples. And so if we place ourselves in Corinth, we can imagine the Corinthian believers struggling with this. What should we do about going to the social events that happen in the temple? We really need to be there if we want to do business in this city. Plus, I'm not of wealth, and so this might be the only opportunity that I have to go and to eat meat. To reframe this into a modern cult uh, context, what do I do about the corporate retreat next weekend? Do I go? Do I not go? I know what happens at those retreats. I know how often people use it as an excuse to, to get away from their families and to go demonstrate horrible behavior. But if I want to move up in this company, then I need to be there. If I'm not there, somebody will notice that I'm not there. But my coworkers, they also know that, that I am a person of faith. What happens if I'm there and that and they think that because I'm there, then they are totally fine acting however they want? What if they use my life as a justification for using this weekend in that way? We can see here how this starts to come into a modern context. That this principle, this idea is something that we see on a very regular basis. And what Paul is doing is he's saying with all of these social and economic and ethnic considerations, don't become a stumbling block for other people by your actions. He goes on in verse 11, he says, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And really what he's getting at here is the notion that Jose talked about last week, that sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. My sin doesn't affect only me. My sin affects the people around me. We see that sin is corrosive and not only has its effects on us, but it has the effects on those around us. Those of us in this room right now, we bear the reminders of those things done unto us, the sin done unto us and the sin in the world around us. And so we see here how this consideration has to be something that we are consciously thinking about. And so Paul goes on and what he demonstrates here is that despite his bulletproof theological argument that food sacrificed to idols is free for the believer to eat, Paul insists that God is much less interested in the rights and freedoms that that grants us than the kind of sacrificial love that gives up those freedoms. Can I make a confession here for a second? This passage is really hard for me. It is. I look back on my life so many years ago when I was getting asked to preach that traditional service and I want to feel justified about my feelings, and I can look into this passage and I can find my justification if I want it, that yeah, I can wear whatever I want to preach, that my ability to be a pastor is not determined by these sorts of things. But what I also see is that in exercising my right to do so, there's a chance that I become a stumbling block to somebody receiving the gospel that I limit my ability to speak into someone's life by exercising my freedom. And that's heavy for me. That's hard for me to bear the weight of. What I was called to do and thank the Lord for wise wisdom in my life was to lay down my rights and my freedoms for the sake of others. Because if I hadn't, they never would have heard heard a word I said. I could have preached the greatest sermon the world has ever heard, and no one would have heard a word because they were focused on the fact that they could see my cut-off shorts. That's the reality of it. And because in exercising my right to dress however I wanted, I would have become a barrier to them hearing the gospel. So guess what? You gotta dress the part sometimes. You have to be appropriate to the context that you're in. And here's what I love about Paul. He hits you with these really hard and heavy theological truths and corrections, but he always points it at his own life too. And so what he does here in 1 Corinthians is he offers his life as a model for the Corinthian believers. And that's what he does here in chapter nine. And he goes on to expound on this idea through his own life. And I'll, I'll give you a bit of a summary. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak. And he goes on here in verse 22 and he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing." Right here we see that Paul is demonstrating with his own life that others coming to know the truth of the gospel is more important than the freedoms that he has as a result of his relationship with Jesus. And what he is modeling for the Corinthian believers is what it means to lose yourself for the sake of the gospel. What he's saying is that others coming to know Jesus has to take priority over our own personal rights and freedoms. Being like Christ does not mean looking out for your own self-interest and safety and comfort and rights above all else. Being like Christ means thinking of others before you think of yourself. And this gets at the idea of purpose. We as believers love to talk about the idea and the concept of purpose in our lives. It's very much something that we can get passionate about, and this hits right on that. What is the ultimate purpose of my life? Is the purpose of my life to live life on my own terms within the freedoms that God has given me, or is the purpose of my life to sacrificially love others and give up my rights for the sake of others coming to know the truth of the gospel? In considering this question, I love the fact that Paul starts chapter eight with love. Because love is the basic building block for understanding this truth. If we don't have love, we never are going to give up our rights for the sake of someone else. We can only truly sacrifice our own personal freedoms if we consciously make the choice to love someone. And that is incredibly hard because oftentimes, These are the people who are not easy and fun to love. They require a lot of sacrifice, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of energy to love people. We so often want people to come to us on our terms. We want them to live life according to the same moral compass that we do. We want them to talk like us. We want them to act like us. We want them to think like us. And we want them to live their life how we think is best. But when we realize but we need to realize that we are called to love those in the world without making our love dependent upon the world becoming like us. That's the reality of what Paul is talking about here that we need to realize we are called to love those in the world without making our love dependent upon the world changing to be more like us. We have to go to them on their terms, not ours. Because it is complete and utter craziness to expect someone who doesn't know Jesus to live their life according to the same principles of Jesus. And so for us to have any ability to speak into their life, to have any impact on them, we have to be willing to go to them and give up ourselves for them. That's the reality here. And this requires a change of perspective on our part. Last week, I asked a lot of our pastoral staff what, what they thought of this passage, and really what I was wanting from them is I wanted to see if there was a very culturally relevant example that like, fits the mold from this passage, and the answer is there isn't one, but what we see is that, quite frankly, this is a contextual issue for the Corinthian church, And so what we have to do is we have to think about what is the theological principle that Paul is teaching us? And Ben answered my question very insightfully with a question of his own. And I've been thinking on this question for the past week and a half, and I'm gonna tweak it slightly from the way he says it, but I want to pose this question to you guys. And what I would challenge you guys to do is as you are on your way home, you're driving home, maybe you guys are going out to lunch after this, or you're gonna sit down to dinner tonight, is to begin to dialogue with your friends, your family, and your community groups about this question. And the question is this, what are you willing to set aside for the sake of the gospel? What are you willing to set aside for the sake of the gospel? Does it mean coming alongside a recovering alcoholic by relinquishing my right to a glass of wine for the sake of the gospel? Does it mean setting aside my political views and opinions for the sake of getting to know the experience of someone who is vastly different from me for the sake of the gospel? Does it mean that I need to change the way that I act and speak at work so that those in my workplace know that I follow Jesus? Does it mean entering into the hurt and the hardship and the pain of someone who is suffering from a broken relationship or marriage for the sake of... Of the gospel. My friends, we are called, each and every one of us, to set aside our own identity, our ideas, our opinions, our preferences, and our freedom for the sake of the gospel. And note here that I said set aside. This isn't a permanent relinquishing of those rights, but it's an understanding of the context in which we are living, and when it's appropriate for us to set things down for the sake of relationship, for the sake of love. Because oftentimes, we get this out of whack, and we forget that people are more important than our freedoms. And so we use our freedoms, we use our knowledge, we use our truth to bludgeon people to death with it instead of using our rights, and our freedoms, and laying them down in a sacrificial way to love people where they are without the condition or the limit of them becoming more like us. Because that is how the gospel begins to have effect in people's lives. When, they, when people see for the first time an unconditional, sacrificial love A conditional, a a love that is without conditions or limits that only comes from a relationship with the Father. So let's be a people, let's be a church that is for our city. Those who are known by what we are willing to give up for the sake of the gospel, not what we are wanting to receive. Though let us be a people who are known by what we are willing to give up for the sake of the gospel rather than receive. When we are unified in the conviction about our rights and our freedoms and our preferences, the diversity in the body of believers really begins to shine. Because no one has to be anything other than who God called them to be. And we see unity in that. And that is where we begin to see real, long-lasting, significant differences in our community, in our families, in our classrooms, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools, is by what we are willing to give up and sacri- do to sacrificially love others. I love that Paul ends this section here in First Corinthians 10 with verse 31. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This isn't an issue of personal morality and personal choices. This is an issue of how we glorify God by the way in which we live, by the way in which we speak, by the way in which we act. For us to be a church that is for our city, we have to do things and lay these down for the glory of God alone. To see God begin to work in Wimberley, to see God begin to work on the campus of Texas State University and all of the other places that we go, bearing the image of God, being his people, walking in unity and glorifying the diversity of experiences in the body of believers. Let me pray.